The Book Thingo podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and rude words. Kate Cuthbert joins us for episode 56, recorded in Sydney. Book Thingo would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Australia's Indigenous people to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thingo Podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo Podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thingo Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. Our guest for this episode needs no introduction to Australian romance readers. Kate Cuthbert is a doyenne of the Australian romance reading community. She's the managing editor for Escape Publishing, an imprint of Harlequin, and a PhD candidate. Kate also has something of a reputation for dropping the C-bomb in professional settings. This episode, we explore some of the taboos around language in romance fiction. You can find information on the titles and authors we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 56. So Kate, let's talk about cunts. Because you have a reputation for <laughs> dropping the C-bomb at literary festivals in front of classy ladies who don't tweet and men in berets. Did you set out to be the champion of cunts? No, I did not. And my mother is absolutely horrified about <laughs> this whole development. Um, in fact, she will not be able to listen to this oh, no. podcast. <laughs> I think she'll be too embarrassed. It's so funny because I grew up not swearing. Like we weren't allowed to swear in our house at all. That's like so, me, actually. Like shut up was a bad word. So... I went to off to university and I would say things like, oh, sugar and <laughs> darn it. And it took a concerted effort for my friends for me to actually, you know, get comfortable saying things like shit and fuck. And even now I don't say it in front of my mom. I say it in front of my kids, though. I'm actually exactly the same. I'm, and I will never swear in in Filipino, in Tagalog. I can't do it. No. I just can't. <laughs> like, it, I feel dirty. Yeah. Um, and I, it's, I'm not alone. I've, I've surveyed many people <laughs> about this and they have similar feelings. <laughs> Do you fear that you'll be that parent whose kid teaches all the other virtuous kids the swear words? Oh my God, I have a story to tell you that I haven't told you yet. So um, I have my copy of Trousseau, um, the zine that you put together a couple years back and like it's underneath oh my coffee table I don't know how, no this it's going. this is a beautiful story it, it's underneath my coffee table with all my other magazines and my oldest daughter she's just turned seven and she had questions and she said to my husband daddy i want she i think said google knows everything daddy i want to google pictures of vaginas so that i can know more about them and my husband was like let's not <laughs> That's do that difficult. You know, why do you want to look at pictures of vaginas? And she was like, well, you know, I just, I can't really see mine. So, um, so I said, ha <laughs> I can help with this. And I pulled out my copy of Trousseau, which of course has 
a diagram of a vulva complete with labels and all of the different parts. And we sat and looked at that for about 45 minutes explaining all of the wow. different parts. So it was a really useful teaching tool. That's actually really adorable. So I'm more worried that she's going to explain the difference between outer and inner labia and where your hymen actually is. That's adorable. So how did you get that reputation? Like, what was the first time when you dropped the C-bomb? And then what made you feel like you wanted to do it again and again and again? <laughs> I think the first time might have been at the Sydney Writers Festival. I believe I was there in that session. Because there were, we were having questions from the audience. And it was the first time that the Sydney Writers Festival had done anything that was romance genre specific. And the place was absolutely packed full. I think everybody was surprised by how many people showed up and we had, we were taking questions and there was a question from a woman in the audience. And I didn't understand what she was asking because she wasn't actually asking the question. It was something about the use of language. language. Or words, yeah. And I thought she meant sort of the, like the language of desire, the, the, and the euphemisms and so on. But no, she actually wanted to talk about the use of profanity. And I remember sitting there, like having this eureka moment and saying, oh, oh, you want to talk about cunt? And the entire audience going. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, once you start down that path, there's you no can't coming go back. back from that. You just have to embrace it and work right through it. And it's funny because it was something that I thought about a lot because that was sort of in escapes infancy still when I did that panel, but I've been working in romance for some time prior and erotic romance had really taken off. And one of the hallmarks of erotic romance was that the hero would refer to the heroine's cunt or the heroine would refer to her own cunt. And it was, you know, there was lots of pearl clutching and a lot of people who you know, authors coming out saying, I would never, ever use that word. And authors, other authors calling those authors prudes. So it was a really divisive, uh, it, well, I mean, it's a divisive word still, but it was a really divisive word at that time within the romance genre. So, but you know, in a, in a genre that has, you know, double penises and <laughs> I don't know, threesomes, foursomes, aliens, why do we squirm when the word cunt is used? Well, I think because the word cunt is very real. It's a word that's been used against women for a really long time. And it's also a word that's been used as a negative thing. You know, the ultimate thing, bad thing that you can call somebody is to call them a cunt. And we just keep breaking through taboos. You know, we're flying through them at the moment. Um, and it sort of existed as this one last bastion of polite language. You know, you'll say everything, but you won't say that word. And I think it makes a lot of sense that romance was one of the the genres that really burst through that and started using it, even though it's still quite genre specific. You're unlikely to see that in um, mainstream, in mainstream romance. But you see it often enough that it's sort of lost its sting a little bit. But I think even Pussy took a little while for mainstream, not erotic romance, but explicit romance yeah. to be comfortable using that word. Well, it's funny because romance goes, all books go through a lot of gatekeepers, not only editors, but also um, readers and booksellers. 
And a lot of times it was the booksellers that were saying, we won't put books with this word on our shelves, you know, and so a lot of the more flowery euphemisms that people often associate with the genre weren't because that's what the authors were writing. It was that because that's what they could get into bookstores and into reader hands. So I guess it's that tension between being a mass market genre, but having elements that, I mean, if you're writing about desire and sexuality, it's really hard to avoid writing language that some people will find offensive. Yeah, Whereas, absolutely. Because, um, you know, one of the big criticisms from the literary world um, about romance is the way that language is used. Mm. Um, it, you know, it's not sophisticated. It's not kind of honest um, because of the purple prose. Yeah, I've never really considered the fact that that happened for a reason, not just because, you know, authors couldn't write explicit language naturally. It wasn't this sort of Barbara Cartland character sort of twittering away <laughs> about, you know, saying penis. It was, she was absolutely forbidden from saying penis. So she came up with tumescence or, you know, turgidity or manhood. Manhood. <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh. Prove your manhood to me. <laughs> you mentioned that we are breaking through taboos in the genre, but do you think that there are still some big taboos that we are struggling to confront and to to write about? Um, yes, I think that I honestly believe that romance is at the spearhead of progression when it comes to representation in literature. But that doesn't mean that romance is doing a particularly good job of it. It's just doing a better job than a lot of the other genres. So we've gotten to the point where it's quite normal to have a lesbian or a gay romance, although lesbians rate far, far, far lower than gay romance. In terms of sales? In, ter mean? Well, in terms of visibility. Visibility. You're much more likely to find a gay romance than you are to find a lesbian romance. But, you know, there's all sorts of areas within the queer community that aren't finding any representation. Certainly the racial representation in romance is quite diminished. Disability in romance, you don't see very often. The vast majority of romance novels are about white middle-class people. And we can do better. We can do better than that. Are you seeing anything different in this post Fifty Shades world? Fifty Shades of Grey didn't change a lot about what was happening in romance because romance was ahead of that curve. You know, Fifty Shades was... It just kind of caught up the readers who weren't into romance yet. Who weren't into romance. Right. And it provided a gateway or, a, you know, it provided some, um, some titillation perhaps. It provided some emotional release. I don't know. You know, if we knew why Fifty Shades had been so popular, we'd be able to duplicate it. Um it's not Fifty Shades that's really changed romance. I think what's really changed romance most recently and most demonstrably is Donald Trump. Because prior to Donald Trump, we had a lot of cold, distant billionaires, like very Christian Grey billionaires. And after Donald Trump, we had single dads suddenly take off. We have... Um, something called Cinnamon Roll Heroes. I've been seeing that a lot yeah. in my Twitter feed. Um, cinnamon Roll Heroes are the new things. So they can still be billionaires. I mean, billionaires haven't gone completely 
off the market, but they have to be gooey inside, like a like a good cinnamon roll. So, um, are you seeing more politics in romance? No, not at all. No, it's funny. Politics is not normally something that shows up in romance novels. It's not a an arena that romance novelists like to play. This is in. true, but you know, one of so Jennifer Creasy wrote for Mills and Boone before mm-hmm. she went to single title. And I had read some of her work not knowing who she was at the time because I just subscribed to the line. Yeah. I think it was Temptation or one of the red ones. Um, but she definitely wrote a book uh, featuring a heroine who was a bit of a hippie and a hero who was like a corporate lawyer or something. Oh, no. it was like a, And she wrote two books that were very similar. But I, re- I distinctly remember when I read The Mills and Boone, not knowing who she was, it just struck me because it was so different to most of the other um, sort of plot lines and character types. Um, And I really enjoyed it Mm -hmm. because, you know, I was sort of late teens, I think early 20s, and I was very idealistic. So I related very much to the heroine who was trying to save the world (laughs) and going against the hero who was like this, you know, stuffed shirt and needed a bit of loosening up. Um, But it surprises me that we avoid politics in romance, even a little bit of politics. I think that... Um, I think that romance novelists are very smart as well as talented. And you have to think about the biggest readership in the world, which is the U.S. And the biggest readership in the U.S. is the Midwest. So you start writing about politics and you immediately... You start losing half your readers no matter which way you go. Exactly. No matter which side you fall on, half of your readership is gone completely so i wonder if we'll see more of it in romances that are coming out of countries outside of the u.s who are servicing markets that are not just the u.s Mm. Um, because i'm really bad at author names but there's a group of authors in the u.s too who are doing sort of politics and romance talks um, and discussing contemporary political events yeah and also how it relates to romance fiction which is kind of interesting it's not it's not something that came up, for example, in the Sydney Writers Festival program <laughs> at all. <laughs> Let's just Maybe put that out Maybe it's my there. fault. It might actually be because I dropped cunt at the Sydney <laughs> Maybe. Writers Festival. And that's oh. it. They're never having romance back. <laughs> so I actually am going to blame you now because <laughs> I was thinking when Kate and Jody, I think, was in that panel as well. And there was one other author. It was Avril Tremaine, Avril Victoria Perman. Myself and Jody was our moderator. And the room was packed, I remember. There was maybe two rows that were left blank and sort of, you know, peop- the odd chair mm-hmm. somewhere. And then nothing the next year. And I couldn't figure it out. But now I think I know the answer. And it's because you said cunt in the it's, Sydney yeah. Writers Festival. Sorry. We should keep dropping the C-bomb every time there's a romance panel. And then we'll get like, we'll do like sock puppets, but like old style. So we'll write letters like we're old ladies who can afford to buy tickets to the Sydney Writers Festival and go, oh, I really enjoy that lady who had a very um, spicy vocabulary. Robust. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kate, you have now, I think, out of everybody I know, you have worn the most number of hats as a literary person. You have been an author, a reviewer, an editor, and now you're an academic. Well, you're still an editor and yeah. an academic, and you even worked for a library association. I did. So, And you worked for, you wrote for Booktopia for a little while. I did. So 
out of the spectrum, like given that you've worked in all these different roles, has that changed what reading means to you? Um, I think it, yes, it had to really, realistically, because I became an editor because I wanted a job where I could read all the time because I felt really passionately about reading and about the written word. And I think anytime you make something that you're passionate about into a vocation, it loses a little bit of the magic. So I know how the sausages are made, for example. I know how books are chosen. I know the discussions that go behind the scenes. And it's not always because we found a book that we love and that we think is going to set the world on fire. Sometimes it's because we found a book that is really very good and right on trend. And we know that the booksellers will enough. like it. And we know that we have a cover that will help it sell. And we know that if we publish this book, then we'll be able to keep the lights on for a little while longer. But then how frustrating is it when you find a book that you really love that doesn't quite find its audience when it's published? Well, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking every single time. And it's, it's heartbreaking for me as well, I think, because I have diminished credibility in terms of being able to hand sell a book particularly because you have a vested interest because in I have a vested interest in it you know because if I sell a lot of these books then um you know that's gonna go into my salary which makes it hard but there are some books that I have taken on and published and just cried over how good they are that I've had to watch sink into oblivion because they just didn't find their audience so how random is it really for a book to find its audience? Like how much does luck play? Luck plays a much bigger role than anybody I think wants to admit. And it's hard. Like it's hard out there right now. Because, you know, you work for Harlequin and they're very savvy about the way a book is packaged mm -hmm. and sort of the external um, elements of the book that put it into readers' hands and convince them to buy it. So, you know, when when a book that you love still sort of can't break through even with those elements around it are you hoping that one day it'll just be like a, a a diamond in the rough and somebody in amazon will find it and 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 send it to 100 of their friends and it'll be like a bestseller again that's one of the things that i love most about working in digital things have very very long tails if you're working in print you have about a month to really make a book stick and if it doesn't stick then that's pretty much the end of it. But in Digi, our books are published essentially eternally, which means that, yeah, once upon a reader's time, they might stumble across it, read it, love it, and then that book gets a second life, which that comforts me. And let's talk about your scholarly work. Yes. You are undergoing a PhD yes. at the moment. Um, I hate to ask you, but how's it going? <laughs> It's going good. Surviving? <laughs> the first year Although, was to hard. Be, to be honest, you are like one of the most scarily organized people I know. So I am I have full confidence. Like if anyone were to finish their PhD early, it would be pretty much you. And you're the only person I know probably who could achieve that. Um, I'm not going to finish it early. I, I will be lucky, I think, to finish it on time. But that's the goal. Um, the first year is really hard. The first year is a lot of performative phd like you have to keep proving that you belong in a phd program so 
there's coursework, there's a lot of handing in little assignments that are just pass fail. And at the end, you go through confirmation, which is um, you have to put together this massive document, and then you have to do a, a presentation, and it goes to people who don't know you. And um, so, and then after that, they sort of leave you alone to do your research. But that whole first year is very much about performing academia. And what's the topic of your thesis? So I'm looking at the use of rural places in Australian popular fiction. Wow. So the reading material for that is like hundred years worth of reading. No, <laughs> no. The one thing I'm learning about PhDs is it's entirely about cutting things down. So I'm only looking at um, romance and crime published since 2005, which is when Jillaroo came out. It's generally considered the kicking off point of the rural romance trend. Have you read that book? Yes. Is that the book where she wakes up in vomit after a BNS after ball. BNS ball. Oh, I can never forget that scene. Like it is at once terrifying and glorious. <laughs> um, but I remember we had this conversation earlier on. So you chose specifically chose not to do your PhD on romance, not just romance, not just romance. Mm -hmm. So you're doing like if it's a crime and romance crossover. It's looking at the way that so so rural romance came along and it's still going very, very strong. And since that happened, or as part of that happening, a, a lot of the other genres have started dipping their toe into rural So romance settings. was the um, trendsetter for rural fiction, would you say? This new incarnation of right. it. Rural okay. fiction's been around for a long time, but sort of in these last 15 years. I mean, I really... feel like rural fiction is more genrefied now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of putting it. So, and since romance has done really well, we've started to see a really strong uptick in crime. There's also been an uptick in fantasy and science fiction and YA, but much, much less. And when I'm trying to, when you're trying to compare like genres, you have to have at least some semblance of balance between the two. And the only thing that's publishing enough is crime to balance against the, the corpus of text that I'll be reading out of romance. I mean, I don't even recall the last time I saw a blurb for a fantasy set in rural Australia. I think there was one set in Tasmania that I vaguely recall. Um, but yeah, it doesn't seem to be super well, popular. Um, Terra Nullius is one that I've read, which I suppose is dystopian. So whether you call dystopian fantasy or science fiction is, I think it's really up to it's a personal but choice. Even Every girl like has broadly to make... spec fig. Yeah. Yeah. But there's been a couple of dystopians set in um, in Australia after apocalyptic events. Yeah, but it's not like if you talk to me about rural romance, mm -hmm. I can even picture sort of a generic rural romance cover. <laughs> if you talk, talk to me about crime fiction set in rural Australia, I could kind of picture what that book might look like. Yeah. But spe speculative fiction, mm -hmm. I can't. And I know why I've read some. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it doesn't kind of stand out in my mind. So how many more months do you have? Or is it still years? For the PhD? Yeah. Um, I'm about halfway through. So I have, I guess, so I've done 18 months. I have about 18 months to go, assuming I finish on time. So then what does an overachieving, acquiring slash managing editor do after she gets her PhD? She insists that everybody calls her doctor <laughs> for at least <laughs> six months. <laughs> 
it's got to be worth something, right? You want the accolade as well. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm sort of, I don't, I'm considering options. I don't think that a career in academia would fulfill me the way that I want to. I like working with writers too much. And to be honest, I'm not ready to hand escape over to somebody else. Well, no, that's not all. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're perfectly capable of doing escape plus <laughs> academia plus your, you know, hobby project on the side, no problems on the weekends. So to finish off, I know this is like choosing which one of your children is your favourite, but who are some of the up-and-coming romance authors that you are seeing that you're excited about? So one of the books that I published last year that I was really, really excited about is by an author named Walton B. Marsland. And the book is called By the Currawong's Call. And it's a an Australian historical set at turn of the century about an Anglican priest who goes to a small rural town for his first posting and ends up falling in love with the town's policeman. And it's just beautifully done. And what I loved so much about Marsland's style is it just lived and breathed Australia in a way that I haven't seen another book capture it quite so well in a very, very long time. And the romance is very well developed. The characters are beautifully developed. It's just a really emotional, wonderful, wonderful read. And it has a happy ending, which is necessary for escape, but not always easy to come across in historicals. Um, So I think that anybody who's interested in anything like that would really do well to to pick up that book who else have i really loved lately i think penelope janu doesn't get the credit that she deserved for her first book which the title has just flown out of my head um but it had a really cute cover um sort of romantic comedy and it was very sexy and it was really funny and it was it was a really delightful read the genre has been flirting with rom-coms for a while it sort of gets popular but then not popular enough to be the latest thing i think the issue is that the genre and the readers are ready to support something like chiclet again but chiclet still has such a bad reputation from last time around that nobody knows quite what to call it (laughs) they need another name yeah so everybody's calling it rom-com or light-hearted or i mean that's what the hating game was which by the way i adored I loved The Hating Game. So if you haven't read that yet, then you are in for a treat. But that's essentially what The Hating Game was. The Hating Game was chiclet that we can't call chiclet because you can't put chiclet into the booksellers. So I think the book you were talking about by Penelope Janu is in At the Deep End. Yes, that's the one. That was delightful. And then outside of Escape, have you been reading sort of... Well, I've been reading Crime, which oh, has been yeah, such a nice break for me, really. So who in crime fiction would you recommend? Well, there's only one book that I had to read twice because I kept getting caught up in the story and forgetting to take notes. So eventually I just gave up, read through the book, and then read through it again to take notes. And that was Candace Fox's Crimson Lake, which just carried me through. Um, She's she's had a lot of buzz for her books. The characters were really well-developed. The mystery kept me guessing. The story was really sympathetic. And... Yeah, it just had a cracking story. So so I know that was supposed to be my last question, but I, there, there is something that I've just, I just, just thought of. In some of these other genres, for example, crime fiction, definitely speculative fiction, 
there is a there is a segment of the market that talks about like the literary body of work in their genre. Mm -hmm. So you can get sort of literary crime fiction and literary Spectre, fantasy, yeah, literary yeah. science fiction. Where is the literary romance? I don't think that romance readers necessarily need it. And I think that it's there. There's many books that are quite lyrically written. And I think that Eva Ibbotson is a good example of somebody who writes very lyrical romance that would probably pass in the literary world more lighthearted perhaps than others. But um, I don't think a, that the romance readership necessarily needs the validation or B, that the literary world is willing to give it a try. I mean, our literary romance is Jane Austen still. Jane Eyre. We just, we we're had, 200 years behind. Yeah, well, we've had um, like authors like Judith Ivory who maybe have not, has like she hasn't been sort of the most popular author, mm. but she's spoken about in sort of affectionate terms mm. by the people who love her work. There's Kinsale, but I think Ivory is probably, her writing is still more literary, I think, than yeah. Kinsale's. But also for me, it doesn't always work. It's a little bit too lyrical sometimes and a bit too, sometimes I find her writing cold, yeah. like too distant. Um, Anna Campbell, I think, is another good example of somebody who has such an extensive grasp on vocabulary. But also Anna Campbell's style has been changing and evolving. Yeah. So um, I don't, does she write? Um, Regency Noir still, or she? I don't no, think she really. is, right? Yeah, not really. We're Which not I kind of love because when you meet Anna Campbell, she's so you delightful. just couldn't like. You're like <laughs> you don't resemble books like it. Just... So when she started writing lighter, less dark books, mm -hmm. then I could kind of see some of the some of her in mm -hmm. her books that I had seen in person, which is great. Thank you so much for coming back to the no Book Thingo worries. podcast. The first time you were you were on the show, I think you had Escape had just started. I yeah. think so. Now we are in um, Escape sixth year. Escape is mature, mm. mature. <laughs> You're a doyen of romance. Now. <laughs> um, I never did tell you why. Like, cunt. Do you want me to do that quick? Yeah, sure. Yes, please. So, <laughs> what is it about cunts that appeal to you, Kate? It's a loaded question. <laughs> It's getting late. It's getting late. Um, the thing that I love most about cunt and using cunt in sex scenes is that it provides a really nice counterpoint to the way that we talk about men's bodies. A lot of the times when you're talking about women, you have a lot of soft sibilant sounds. So pussy, her softness, her moist channel, which are, they're all receiving words. You know, even sheath, which is what vagina means in Latin. They're all they're all words that are being done to. Whereas if you talk about the euphemisms for men, I mean, penis is quite a soft word, but you never see penis. You see cock, you see dick, you see thrust and hardness and, you know, sword, silk covered sword that comes up an awful lot. <laughs> you know, so those are, those are doing words. And so I think when you pair a word like cock with a word like pussy, then you're automatically creating a power dichotomy that I don't think is necessarily true. I also don't think it's very helpful. So if you actually want to bring your heroine to the party, so to speak, you want a word with like nice hard consonants that really barks back 
that provides an equal opportunity for some really hot sex. So pairing cock with cunt is just more intensely satisfying, I think. Do you think there's a sense that re- many readers are still uncomfortable with heroines having too much power in romance? Because I feel like this is a similar, not argument, but a similar discussion that we sometimes have about heroines who are dominant in romance and the uncomfortable feeling that so many readers seem to get. And not even heroines that are dominant necessarily, but heroines that are equal or heroines that are more straightforward or more powerful. I don't think that you will find a lot of heroines that are actually dominant or even the dominant personalities in romance. But there's there's that internalized idea, I suppose, of when women talk 30% of the time, people think that they are talking more than men. Um, and I think it's there in romance as well in terms of what constitutes power for women and the idea of going back to the the guardian ward romances where the feminine power was that the hero loved her so she could control him through his love for her and that's where her power had to come from. And I mean, we've come a long, long way from that sort of idea of how a power dynamic should work within a couple. But I, I can understand it. I mean, I was brought up being told not to swear. Ladies don't swear. So everybody has to find their way to embrace their own cunt. In short, cunt is power. Cunt is power. And we should have more cunt in romance. (laughs) That's all for this episode. Thanks always to our audio producer extraordinaire, Rudy Bremer. You can find the show notes for episode 56 at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. Or you can tweet us using the hashtag bookthingopodcast. I know some of you are champion live tweeters and we'd love to get your thoughts on the show in real time. In the next episode, I'm joined by the kindest author in the world, Nalini Singh. In the meantime, please visit us at bookthingo.com.au and have a fabulous fortnight of reading.